Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to All Together, the Family Science Insights Podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, we've spoken about fostering in previous episodes, the system in place, the caregiver's experience, as well as the biological parent's perspective. Today's episode is looking in the impact of foster care on a child's mental health. To help us look into the view of a child is licensed clinical social worker. She has also earned her PhD in marriage and family therapy in 2014. Is Dr. Morgan Cooley. Thank you so much for joining me, Morgan. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's nice to meet you. Now, your focus is on a lot of the relationships between child mental health and the family system. So can you sort of say how you got into looking deeper into this as a theoretical point of view? Absolutely. So when I first started my master's in social work, I actually had just come out of doing a degree in music. And I realized, hmm, this might not be the field that I'm supposed to be in. Um, but I found social work to be really welcoming. I was already doing volunteer work and a lot of my friends were social workers. And so when I dug in, I had no intention of going into child welfare. There's stigma towards child welfare that children are taken away by social workers, that um, the child welfare system is broken, um, and many of those things. And I, I can say that it, it can be very complex, but... Um, when I ended up getting into internships and working with those who had been impacted by child welfare services or foster care, I realized, um, you know, what an important field it was. And so I ended up doing an internship with residential foster care here in the States and also a policy um, internship on the side at the Florida Governor's Office of Adoption and Child Protection and kind of fell in love and, um, I guess, really recognized the importance of understanding the daily kind of on the groundwork of child welfare, as well as how policy kind of shapes the context for how decisions are made for families, um, on behalf of families, um, how it influences decisions that families can make and those kind of things. But that's basically kind of a broad introduction for how I kind of fell in love with child welfare. Um, and all of that directly impacts um, the child who often has the least decision-making um, capacity within the child welfare system. Yeah, and I think we've spoken about this um, you and I off camera before we started recording, as well as in previous episodes, that there's always that impact on a child that we don't really see or the system that's in place isn't really seen, especially the way that I've sort of perceived it in the US as well. There's such a huge difference in to what they think is best for the child and what the child thinks is best for the child. So why is it important to see the child's perspective into how they feel about the foster care. Absolutely. I think that, um, so one, I'll probably, you know, just start off by saying that there's been a really recent push in the U.S. I'm not sure what it's like in other areas or territories um, to kind of look at the lived experience or lived expertise of those who have been impacted by child welfare or foster care. 
when making decisions. Because if you look at the impact of foster care, the impact of child welfare on children and families, not all of it is positive. And sometimes there's ways that we can do things better. I know one of the hardest things that I find um, in the studies that I do that's um, with foster parents, with foster children, with professionals is um, there's different words for it, but a lot of people say the system is broken, the system is harmful. You know, some people um, talk about the good experiences that they have, but usually the good experiences are the things that happen in the home or the things that happen in the therapy room or the things that relate to things that don't happen in the foster care system. And so um, for me, just kind of hearing that, you know, why would we want a system that's meant to heal or meant to help um, that creates harm or that might, you know, hurt families. And I know one thing as a researcher, we often, um, we've just been starting this conversation in the last, you know, few years. Uh, I've heard a little bit of it in the past decade or two is that, you know, sometimes research creates harm and any harm that's done should be reflected on, examined, those kind of things. So it's just really important to think about. We want to know what the child's experience is because they might be harmed by the system and maybe they have a perspective on how we can address the system and make it better. Yeah, I think especially when it comes to the lived experiences, there's such a huge dynamic as to how each person in power or in like the hierarchy of the social system sees it happening. Like the child is going to be one that, I mean, if you've ever seen any movie that sort of comes about on how a child is sort of seen, it's always like pushed to the corner, you do as you're told kind of thing. And that's sort of how the system, as I've come to understand it over the past episodes that I've spoken and heard from other guests as well, that there's such a huge neglect into that perspective. Absolutely. One of the um, recent studies that my team completed um, here at the university that I work at was a photo voice study. And photo voice is a qualitative methodology that uses photos and how people reflect on those photos to kind of understand maybe the need for social change or like ways to, um, you know, kind of create social change. And so we um, did a study where we talked to youth who are in residential foster care to look at their experiences with self-determination, their social connections, and also how they feel about their self-advocacy and like their ability to advocate for themselves as they start to work towards independent living and think about what life is going to be like outside of foster care when they've aged out. Because most of them are planning to age out and not within like a foster family setting. And a lot of them really talked about um, that their decisions were influenced by other people, that that they didn't feel that they really had self-determination necessarily because they were in kind of a vulnerable position of being this, you know, child within the system. And so um, even though that's hard to hear, it's really important to hear, like if we're creating independent living programs that help them to get skills to become adults, you know, these programs are there to teach relationships, um, self-advocacy, finances, how to get employment, those kind of things. You know, if they are getting these skills through these programs, but then they're still talking about feeling limited or that other people are making decisions for them, then how helpful are those programs, right? So, you know, we want them to have self-determination and um, learn those things for themselves, but everything is happening within this really high stakes environment where um, there's a lot of risk for them um, and a lot of people making decisions for them. No, that is, I think that in the whole idea of independent living, I have only ever seen it in TV shows, in in films and things like that on the way that process sort of goes about. And it's a very interesting idea for people who aren't 
who are sort of aging out of the foster care system, aging out of um, being adopted or being fostered out because they're coming up to 18 and they have to start living on their own. So there's that whole policy as well that it just feels like a lot of kids, as they get older, they're less likely to be fostered out or less likely to be taken in in an environment that sort of gives them that opportunity. So, yeah, I think going in, and I would love to keep discussing this, but before we get started, um, I would love to get to know you a little bit more and that we create a little icebreaker to get to know each guest. And when I say, when I ask you these questions, just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. The first one is a favorite book of yours. So I would say one of my favorite books, it's kind of an academic book, but it's something that has really shaped my perspective on families, is a book that was written, I think it was written in 2000-ish, but updated in 2016, or at least the foreword, and it's called The Way We Never Were. And it's specific to the American context, but um, the author, Stephanie Kuntz, kind of gives a lot of different ways that um, she's a historian. So it's kind of, an, like I said, it's a little bit more academic, but she gives like all of this um, like research, her historical research about how what we think the like typical um, idealized family, you know, two parent child, you know, nuclear family. Um, she kind of gives evidence to how that isn't necessarily um, the way things have been in society and that it's not always the idealized family form. And for me, it's made such a difference to think that like sometimes we um, think of other family forms that are not two parent families to be deficient in skills or money or love or, or whatever time or those kind of things. Um, but it really kind of challenges our perspective to think that like history actually is different and there is research to support, you know, how single parent families, kinship networks and those kind of things can be um, healthy and, and good. Well, that sounds like a very interesting perspective into, into families and into the whole system that's in place. And I think a lot of it is based on systems. If you think about it, there's so many things that are based on there's everything has a system in place, but it's whether that system works or not is a huge question. Uh, the next one is a favorite movie of yours. Uh, so I have a really hard time picking favorites, which you'll probably find as I go through these next questions. But um, I did just see everything everywhere all at once. So we'll, we'll go with like more of the popular-ish uh, recent movies and um. I'm, I would say I was very impressed by the fantasy elements and the things about um, the, I guess, the, the film and the way that it are not real. But I was also uh, really intrigued by kind of like the the messages of like the film. And I don't know if I should give spoilers, but, you know, there is kind of this message of like unconditional love and like finding joy and like the hard things and kind of like the normal or mundane things of life. So we'll leave it at that. But yeah, it's a good movie. Yes, I've seen it about three times and it was very, it was very bad because I somehow got obsessed with the whole idea that sort of comes about. And yeah, we're not get, we won't give any spoilers because it's still a recent movie. And yeah, the last thing we need is um, to give a spoiler out to someone. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, the next one is a favorite podcast that you listen to. One of my favorite podcasts is it's kind of more of a self-help podcast, but they have a lot of great guest speakers is Glennon Doyle's We Can Do Hard Things. And it um, came out of her book Untamed that um, really shortly at the beginning of the pandemic, I believe, I think. Um, but the podcast is very encouraging. It's also um, 
they just have a lot of really authentic conversations about like how you can get through like the hard things in life. I had my first child in August, 2020 um, during the pandemic. And I would say, I think that podcast probably carried me through um, some really difficult moments when life just Life already changed a lot and outside of my control, um, but it also like the podcast kind of addressed some of the things that I felt, you know, were helpful for just like recovering and building resilience and moving forward. Well, that does sound like it made a huge impact. And I think that I love podcasts that do sort of, they do that, but without the intention of really wanting you to do something, which is something that not a lot of podcasts can do. And it's a very difficult thing. So that sounds really cool. The next one is a famous role model that you have. So I don't really know a lot of famous people, um, but I know a lot of famous researchers. So I think I'll just throw out some credit to my mentors. I have some really awesome mentors like um, Dr. Ann Farrell at Chapin Hall and Drs. Patty Chamberlain and John Landsberg at the um, Oregon Social Learning Center. And also just um, people who are on my dissertation committee to me, they're superheroes and famous and awesome people who um, help shape me into the the person I am today. And also hopefully the, the critical and kind researcher I'm trying to become. No, that's really cool. And I think they would definitely appreciate that. <laughs> um, lastly, is a favorite, favorite course that you've completed? So I'm about to start a grant where we're going to be looking at sexual safety programming and doing a needs assessment here in the state that I live in. And so I just did an, um, an online course on child sexual abuse, which is very appropriate to child welfare, um, but I learned a lot and it kind of helped me to think about um, how to enhance the project. Um, and then the other um, training I did was a positive parenting course. I have a two-year-old and I use those positive parenting skills like every day right now, because two-year-olds are awesome and wonderful and full of autonomy building um, challenges and all kinds of things. But um, yeah, so positive parenting, child sexual abuse um, through one of my professional organizations. Wow. No, that's, a, that's a very heavy, heavy course to take on as well. Now, going in, talking about a family, talking about foster care, I know that everyone has a very different view as to what family is defined as and there's no universal meaning to it everyone has their own understanding as to how they would see a family um to you personally what would you define the word or the phrase or the idea of family as definitely i think we often think of family very very narrowly as like a group of people joined by blood or marriage or legal things such as adoption but um, I don't know, to me, it's almost helpful to think of family and um, within like a context so that family is family, but there's different contexts. So like I think of families as families by choice, families by circumstance or chance, and sometimes families by force, um, you know, because people don't often choose their family or they're often thrown into family um, or those kind of things. Um, but I think overall, like family, um, it's a very intentional thing for people that like even natal or biological families have to work very hard to keep their families together sometimes. And so if anything, it's a group of people um, brought together for some reason. Um, but to me, that's kind of how I think of definition as a family. No, I think amazingly, there are so many guests on the show that I've had previously who felt exactly the same way and who have defined it the exact same way, which is Amazing because it sort of gives me the understanding that that is the universal meaning of family. If every 
person has pretty much said the same thing. I think the same thing as well. And I'm pretty certain that that's probably going to be the universal definition. It's pretty much just a connection between two people, whether they see it as a family connection or a friend connection, whether it's related or not, there is that huge connection between two people. And that's pretty much how I would see family also. Like there's a huge, I see a lot of my friends as family, probably some of them more than my own family. So yeah. it's a very interesting concept. And that's why I always love asking it every single time it comes on, because I love hearing it's sort of like a reassurance that that is what the definition would be. Yeah. Now, do you think that the whole idea of family and the whole position that a family has, do you think, what do you think that position is in how today's society works? Um, so for me, I still think of, and some of this is influenced by my background or my training or my my prior work as a therapist, um, mostly with families and couples. So it was um, kind of majority of my clients. But to me, um, families are still, I think, kind of the central and like vital um, position or source or um, unit within society. To me, um, I think of like, we spend so much money, so much time, so much research, so much energy on trying to figure out how to create families, how to stabilize families. Um, how to support families, for example, thinking of like safety networks and, you know, like how we provide families who might not have um, their basic needs met with what they need to like um, be successful. You know, so to me, I really think of families as still kind of this really vital and important thing within society. Um, I think that's shaped by like social, economic, cultural or historical contexts like that tell us um, or help us to form our own views on like what's important um, within society or like what family is. People define family. You know, we just talked about it. in some ways there's a universal um, perspective that families are connections, but some people think of those connections very differently, right? Um, so I think that, um, you know, family can mean different things in different contexts, but um, for the most part, like everything to me is kind of sourced around family. Um, when I think of child welfare and foster care, I mean, the the whole, um, no matter how we go about it, the whole intent of the child welfare system is to reunify families ultimately if possible. Um, and so that whole, the whole purpose um, is to try to reunify families. Sometimes that's not possible. Um, and sometimes in the US there's, there's a lot of critique that the services are mostly geared at like trying to stabilize children, but you can't stabilize children without stabilizing their family because children don't have a lot of decision-making power, right? Um, so I think of it in those ways. Um, but th just kind of those examples make me think that, wow, family is still a really important thing in society. Um, and also, too, just to kind of add one more point to that, um, all the children or families that I've worked with, you know, even children in foster care who have had parents who have done something that have caused them to be put into foster care maltreatment or neglect or or things like that, the vast majority of the children still love their families, still love their parents, they want to be connected to their parents. Um, so from the perspective, or for me, at least the perspective as a therapist and a researcher working with children and families, you know, children want to be in families and they want to be with their family when possible. It's really important to them. Yeah, and I think especially when talking about importance and the whole importance of family, I know you're saying it's like it's important in today's society. It's something that it does hold such an importance into how we function as a community, how we function as a society as a whole. 
Do you think it still holds the same importance as it did, say, decades ago when it comes to how we used to understand family? I think so, because um, the the book that I talked about, the way we never were, um, you know, we often think of like 1950s TV shows. I don't know what the TV shows were, um, but I, um, in Australia, but I do know what they are like in America, like Leave It to Beaver and you know Dick Van Dyke and like kind of the picture of like what the um, what this idealized family is, you know. But the reality is is that some of those um, like pictures of what family work came about because families were separated due to war or shifting circumstances where. Um, women had to leave the home and go to work because men were, you know, like on, you know, like their leave for like, um, you know, the military or whatever. So just kind of painting like these pictures. So in some ways, like the picture of what we um, value in certain ways as a family might not always have been that way, but we got that picture because of the changing demographics and the way that families were changing over time. And that's just like kind of one example. Um, So to me, what I think is that um, family is, really different sometimes than what we see it depicted as within the media. Um, and the word paying more attention to what like families of choice or families of circumstance. Um, and for me, sometimes I think families of force because sometimes child welfare, um, families are impacted by child welfare, families of force because children don't choose their foster family um, at times. Sometimes there's not relatives that can take children in. That's the priority here in the United States. Um, you know, but those are really important things still to think about is that, you know, family is, you know, family is family. Um, It just looks different from different homes um, in different places. No, I think especially like when you're talking about American TV and you're talking about how families used to be, I always somehow refer back to the show Full House and how they see all the distant family, all the distant relatives. And that is a huge connection as to how the family works and how family systems sort of feed into dynamics but the reality is not every family was like that i either way even then and even now there's still that whole idea of that families don't work the way that it looks like it does on tv and i think we get caught up in how the media sort of sees family rather than how reality really sees family and i think especially when it comes to the kind of media that the kind of shows that are out now, the kind of reality that they are showing, they're showing a lot more like single mothers are showing a lot more of foster parents. And I mean, I knew, I know we had Brady Bunch as one sort of idea of a blended family, but that was still an idealistic way of how we see family and how we're supposed to, not every family gets fitted together that easily or gets along really easily and it was such a huge I think now the way that the media sort of portrays what family systems work as and they do show a lot of foster uh foster care families when it comes to the show the fosters for example like that was a big one that I took to heart because I was like okay imagine just everyone just taking each other in no one really gets along completely but they still do try to find a way to function and find that necessary care that does take place. And I hope that we do get a little bit more media attention when it comes to how reality of families are, not just the idealistic and dramatic way that families sort of go about. But I think it's going, for what I see at least, it's going in a different direction than 
what we used to see family systems and family dynamics are. Definitely. I think, you know, if we stigmatize one type of family as being deficient, we miss the opportunity that it might be more appropriate or helpful or healthy, you know, in certain contexts. You know, I think of like grandparent um, led families or like relatives who are older. You know, a lot of times we think of them, they're living on a fixed income because of they're not working. So they might be receiving like a government stipend or however the political system is um, where we're living, you know, so they have less economic means. Um, they're older. But, you know, in some ways, if the child can't be with their parents, who else might that child want to be with? They probably would want to be with their grandparent um, or another, you know, family member. So, um, you know, it's not necessarily unhealthy, but like, how can we provide, you know, supports or resources to help them to be healthy because that's the best placement for that child, um, you know, or it's a connection to other parts of their family when they can't be with their parent. This is an example. No, exactly. I think grandparents are huge. And I've spoken about this with other guests as well. When we're talking about grandparent relationships and sometimes that is the better option, but not always that is a option that I think a lot of the systems were worried that the child would become the caregiver, caregiver <laughs> to the grandparents. And that is still a huge worry when it comes to the age relevancy of who takes care of who and who's going to help who. Is it <laughs> the, the grandparents is going to help the child or is it the child that will end up helping the grandparents and becoming that caregiver um, archetype that sort of plays a role? So yeah, there's, I think uh, there's a huge question when it comes to that. Yeah. Now, how does the experience of being in a foster care affect a child's mental health? So one thing that I often kind of think about, and this is not to, um, it's never to like say negative things about the foster care system. Although I think we should always be critical because I kind of talked about sometimes we have systems that create harm unintentionally, for example, but you know, I always think nobody wants their child or their loved one to be in foster care. You know, if you were to imagine like the best outcome for your child, nobody would say, I want my child in foster care, right? Um, no child wants to be in custody of, the, you know, a system or of, um, no child wants to live with a family they don't know, you know? And so when I think about that, like just the experience of being in foster care is often really difficult because it's not their caregiver. It's not their primary parent or, or whoever they're used to. So, um, you know, kind of like just to tack on to that, children often enter um, foster care because they've experienced some sort of sub substantiated maltreatment or neglect. And so that often um, is a trauma. It's not always a trauma for the child, but um, sometimes it is a trauma for that child. But then if you think of um, in the U.S., we're really big on adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. I don't know if that's also a really big thing. It moves from ACEs to trauma-informed care. But in the U.S., ACEs are big. And so um, family separation is an example of an adverse childhood experience. So just the like separation from a parent and placement into foster care, for example, um, is a trauma in itself or, or is not a trauma, sorry, is an adverse childhood experience that could lead to a trauma. And then just within that, like if you're thinking of what they're experiencing foster care, sometimes they're waiting to know whether they are reunified. There is uncertainty. You know, they tell child welfare workers never to promise things to youth that they can't deliver on. So don't say you're going home. They encourage parents not to tell children that they're going home. You know, and if as a child, like, can you imagine like living with that uncertainty of not knowing if you're going to see your parent soon or again? Um, another example I often give my classes is um, 
the first experience of being separated from the family. Um, for the most part, children do not get to physically see their parent and they might not get to talk to their parent until the first court date after the removal. Well, for the state that I'm in, sometimes it's two to three weeks. So there might be two to three weeks where the child cannot see their parent. There's a policy in Florida that um, is requiring a comfort call, which is a call with the birth family, the child, or the birth parent, the child, and the foster parent that's facilitated by the child welfare agency. But in a lot of cases, they're finding that that's not happening because of the, the chaos or the complexity or some of like the system is not set up to handle those calls with that policy, but they're trying, you know, so I always say it's a good thing. So maybe we'll talk more about it um, at the end, if we get to it at the open mic section or not, we'll see, we'll see what, where we are by then. But um, just to kind of give like, there's a lot of luck going on, a lot of uncertainty. And then um, there's growing research that shows that negative things can happen to youth while they're in foster care. Um, you know, due to gaps in services, lack of timely services because they're waiting on insurance or different things to kind of take over. Um, youth might be placed in different homes where they experience um, new communities that they're not familiar with, um, new family or cultural situations that are not reflective of their own family. Um, you know, those are just some examples. Caseworker turnover, child welfare worker turnover is really big in the U.S. right now. It's a big focus. And so all of those things can impact a child's mental health. So um, one thing when I think of mental health is, you know, we often think of specific diagnoses, but also just mental health symptoms. And within like the context of like clinical practice and research, we often think of them as internalizing or externalizing behaviors. Um, and when we think of, when I think of behavior, it's all mental health. You um, might think of a child, not you, but like, you know, family might think of a child as exhibiting something like a problematic behavior. But a lot of times that's indicative of a mental health symptom or a mental health disorder or diagnosis. And so um, if you think like we talked about complexity, uncertainty, moves, transition, separation from family, um, maybe trauma that happened before they entered foster care. You know, there's a lot of things that foster families and children, like they need support and preparation to kind of navigate and deal with. Um, and generally for like children and youth, parents and caregivers and foster parents find the externalizing behaviors to be more difficult. So those are like the acting out behaviors, the aggression, vandalism, um, those kind of things, fighting or whatever. Um, whereas internalizing behaviors are often um, difficult, but seen as less problematic for caregivers. And that would be like anxiety or depression. So when you think of all of those things, children can have both internalizing and externalizing behaviors. Um, and, I, and I don't know if it's helpful for others, but um, when we think of that too, like most of the time, the way that as clinicians these days we're taught to think is that children might have a mental health diagnosis, but a lot of times when they're exhibiting something problematic, it's because they're not able to meet the expectation of the adult or the the system or the family that they're they're in. You know, so being in a new family, a new context, maybe a new culture, a new community, you know, all of those things going on top of what um, they're experiencing, it kind of creates the, the need for families to really understand how to support youth. And especially when it comes to, I mean, the whole idea of a trauma, sort of the transition between going into a home that you've known for so long for a child and then going into a foster foster home or a social work care system. Is there a transition between going into the family home or the biological parents to the foster carer? Or is there sort of just that jump between the two? So I, I'm not completely sure if there's differences by state here in the U.S., but um, generally 
the the removal processes um you know it, if it's a calm process it's facilitated by the child welfare agency or or if they're in like an outside of the home setting like it happens where the child is um, but children need to have their belongings and things like that with them when they move into the foster home and they're separated from their their primary caregiver um, but there's usually not a huge transition unless people are doing a, a comfort call or they they call them different things um, in different places, but they have that call where it's the parent, the foster caregiver, um, and like kind of the agency facilitating that call. And not all children get invited onto those calls. Um, sometimes foster parents are intimidated by birth families or biological families because um, even though they receive pre-service training and um, they go through a licensure process prior to becoming foster parents, you know, if they haven't necessarily experienced um, like issues around trauma, substance use, mental health, neglect, uh, maltreatment, like those kind of things, they might still have a high stigma or a bias or something like that that makes them afraid. Um, some Sometimes there are really dangerous or um, difficult situations, but in a lot of cases, parents um, are dealing with parent stress, they're dealing with mental health, substance use, or those kind of things. So I just kind of like Lay, lay all that out there to say it's not really a big transition and it can be really challenging. Um, there are places that are trying to do like kind of trauma-informed centers where like, you know, they have the family come to the center and it's a little bit more smooth, but most places don't have like that kind of model. Those are like really kind of a newer, more emerging kind of process. Okay. And we know that mental health is such a big conversation when it comes to the child's trans transition and going into different systems, how can we ensure that a children in foster care receive the mental health support that they need? So one of the big theories that family science, family scientists um, and kind of like the field of family science has a lot of different theories, but I always try to think of um, ecological theory or Bronfenbrenner's ecological theory, if um, anybody's ever brought it up, is often like a grounding theory for understanding how people are influenced by the, the world that they live in. Um, so really um, what that theory says is that children are kind of nested or like kind of involved in multiple systems. They're an individual person, um, an individual system. They are a person um, who is within a family system. So if you're thinking children in foster care, you have their birth or their biological family as well as their foster family. And then within that, they're nested within schools or, or community organizations or a larger community or neighborhood environment. And then within that, you're nested within things like political or ideological systems um, around like beliefs and views around um, many different things. So I kind of point that out to think of mental health really has to kind of take a, a similar perspective. You have to treat the individual child and make sure that they're getting the right services that they need. And um, I often hear that you know, we need to put all foster children in therapy. And that, that's really not the case. Um, not all foster children need mental health therapy. I always joke, like sometimes the parents or the foster parents or whoever the caregivers, they need the therapy. Sometimes the parents or the adults in the system need support services, parenting skills, or, or other types of training to navigate kind of what's going on. Um, but I point all of those things out that, um, you know, like it, you might treat the child, you might treat the family to help treat the child. Um, but then when you also think of kind of like the larger system, you need policies and procedures at the organizational level and then like the political level that um, provide uh, evidence-based training or adequate training that provides supports for foster families to navigate mental health challenges or things that children come through. For example, um, one of my recent studies 
or a few of my recent studies, I would say when we're talking to foster parents, they say um, there's often wait lists for like uh, behavioral health services for children. Um, and that's not always helpful because children who are dealing with mental health problems, sometimes it's like an emergent like or a crisis issue or something that really needs to be addressed right away. Um, so when you're not getting it in a timely fashion, like sometimes by the time they get the service, the child is kind of, you know, like been able to use their resilience to kind of move through that, but have been really helpful to have a more supportive or empathic response immediately before or for the foster family. If they don't know how to, a lot of foster families have never parented before or they've never worked with a child who has a mental health problem before or never parented a child who's experienced trauma before. You know, so if you think like, for them, sometimes when the child is dealing with something that maybe they deal with on a regular basis, but they've never seen, they don't have an inadequate response, you know, they need a system that's there to kind of provide immediate services um, and not have to wait for a court order or like a court signature to like say, okay, now you can like find an insurance company that will pay for this service or, or you can like, you know, go to insurance to like find the service or whatever. Um, so it's, it can be kind of complex. So individual services for the child, um, but cater to their needs. Maybe they need tutoring. Maybe they need a social support group. Uh, maybe they need a mentor, for example, um, services for the birth in the foster families. Um, maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's individual counseling. Maybe it's um, for foster caregivers. A big thing is respite care. Um, they often, you know, especially or single caregivers or like older caregivers, sometimes they need to run errands without the children or go to their own appointments or those kind of things. Um, so they need their supports. And then like at kind of the agency and larger level um, policies of programs that dictate like the right amount of training and support at the right time um, for both the child and the family. And especially, I guess, there comes the group therapy where so many other people in the similar situations sort of get together and mingle and sort of trade methods and techniques. And I guess that's another way that can be supported. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing when I think about group therapy, um, just as a therapist, a family therapist, or um, like a couple of family therapists is um, you want to be careful about putting children who have been in foster care and have experienced different types of trauma with youth and natal families who haven't had that same experience. But when youth are in foster care with other youth, um, who have had similar experiences, it can be really helpful and really impactful to have kind of that social support network. Um, I also think to um, something that we found through the photo voice study, um, it's a small sample, but something that's often reflected is um, youth in foster care often have this really intense self-reliance, like I have to do this myself, I have to do this on my own. Um, but then like they also say that one of their biggest sources of support are other youth who have been through this before them who said like, oh, here's how you sign up for this social service program, or here's how you get access to benefits to help pay for food or for your children if you're like a parenting, um, you know, youth who's parenting in foster care or something along those lines. So, um, you know, you have like this intense self-reliance, but like really depending on people who've been there before you, they, they want to talk to other youth. They don't always want to talk to workers or therapists or people who are, you know, have fancy titles or those kind of things. So it's important to think about yeah. that. Yeah, I think especially like you're talking about mentorships and just saying, okay, this is how I sort of got through the day-to-day -day life. And this is similar to what you can do. Like the system, I know that for me, I loved having people who are older than me sort of saying, okay, this is what you need to look at when you get older. Like you need to start looking at bills. You need to start looking at 
how to get a job and all those things. And it's so different when you have someone to guide you who's gone through the experience even more recently than, for example, a foster care system has, a foster care or caregiver has gone through it. So I can definitely see how that really fits in with what a child would need and what a mentee would need as well. Now, what role do foster families play in supporting a child's mental health while they're in their care? Definitely. So foster parents, I always say, are the primary caregiver. Um, They're the one who's with the child the most, um, often the longest. Um, They are really looked at as, you know, the parent. But as I mentioned to you before, a lot of foster parents have never parented before or they've never parented a child of that age before or um, like I said, they haven't paired a child who's had experienced trauma or who's dealing with mental health symptoms or problems. So um, for foster parents, they really need to be prepared through their pre-service and their in-service training to understand um, not just what a child has experienced, but how to work with a child, how to be empathic, how to be supportive, and also how to self-regulate. Because um, when foster parents um, haven't learned those skills, they you know are more likely to or to um, see the placement be disrupted because they can't um, work with the child's mental health problems or um, label them as really negative behaviors that they can't handle. Um, so I always think that you know foster parents need evidence-based skills training. A lot of pre-service training in the United States, it's more didactic. So it's like teaching, here's what um, has happened, here's what you might see. Um, but we haven't always necessarily found a way to kind of impart skills before they go into the training program. Kind of like, you know, not that like every foster parent has to be a social worker or a psychologist or whatever, um, you know, but we still like want to kind of think about how can we like equip skills um, early on so that foster parents are entering more prepared. Um, but then we also want to think about, um, you know, we have a lot of good programs that um, give evidence-based parenting skills, behavioral parenting, positive some positive parenting. Um, it's a little bit less evidence of behavioral parenting, but um, still similar. And so foster parents really need access to that early on. And a lot of foster parents don't have access to that um, until they know that they need it, until they can um, look it up themselves. It's not always offered to them like early on. Um, they really need to kind of have those things um, brought early. And then the other thing too is that foster parents need to know how to build relationships with you. Um, one thing that I found through, through my research is just the importance of um, not just implying or imparting um, like discipline or structure with youth, but also um, having a high level of warmth and acceptance and unconditional regard for that youth, um, because that's like one of the things that helps youth to have better mental health outcomes. So like I said, just to kind of um, like reiterate, like good training, good support, um, skills and kind of knowledge and child development. And then the last part of that would be foster parents who are willing to work with birth families um, to co-parent and to kind of support um, youth because the ultimate goal is to try to get that youth back to that family um, and to reunify them with their birth family. And so um, foster parents, they have to have a lot of skills. It's a, it's a big ask, you know, being a foster parent, it's not easy. Um, and I think a lot of children as they get older, like that I've talked to some that recognize like, why are my foster parents doing this? You know, this is a really tough job. Like this is tough. Like it's tough for me. I, I can understand that. Um, but it's a it's a big ask, but it's also really important that they're showing up for the the child who, who has less power than um, all the other people in their life combined. I no, I think especially when it comes to the, the process of becoming a foster 
caregiver or foster care, um, there's so much vetting that needs to be done beforehand. There's so much, um, whether the space is big enough, whether the facilitations are easy to access, whether there's a school nearby, um, police records, financial records, all that things. There's so many things that sort of go into becoming a foster parent and looking after another child, even before the child sort of comes into the house. There's still that whole lot of understanding that needs to take place and courses that you need to go to and um, workshops that you attend just to understand the level of um the level of care that's needed for a child and the level of emotion that's needed for a child. So every, every time that I have a guest on, I had a previous guest who was a foster parent himself. And it was so interesting how the, the part of emotion of taking a child in and also letting a child go, whether they're being fully adopted or whether they're going back to their family as a reunification, there's that emotion that sort of takes place with <laughs> becoming a foster parent and caring for a child that's not completely yours. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that the foster care system hasn't necessarily um, accomplished yet is kind of recognizing the complexity of what family is in the foster care system. A couple of my colleagues and I a few years back used um, family systems theory to kind of write a paper like to demonstrate that like family and foster care is the child, the birth family, the foster family, the child welfare workers, sometimes the guardian, the child advocates are like the rest of the system. So, you know, family is more complex and sometimes the child welfare system doesn't always take care of every part of the family equally or consider all parts of that family the same way. Um, but I think a lot of that is compounded by like the stress that, um, you know, often surrounds like why people are involved or impacted by child welfare systems. Um, there's a lot of social issues and problems that are kind of interconnected. So it's really, it is necessarily complex. Um, but I think that there's a lot of people out there who are trying to figure out how to make things just a little better. Um, but yeah. It's a, it's a tough one, um, but something that we're really focused on, I think. When talking about the going into the foster care system and looking into the impact of a child's mental health, how does the length of time spent in the system, in the foster care area or the foster parents, how does that impact a child's mental well-being? So generally, they find that the longer a child is placed in care, um, the more um, of a negative impact it can have on a youth's health, mental health specifically. And so, you know, if you think about that, you know, the longer they're in care, the more uncertainty they're likely to experience, the more likely they are to have a change of placement. Um, sometimes if they're with a family member, like uh, maybe family members are always able to take children in for a long time if they're older or if they have other children in the home or, or sometimes that's the case with foster families too. And so, um, I just kind of bring those things up to say that, you know, generally like that we want to try to limit the amount of time that a youth is in care. And um, that can be really difficult because sometimes youth are in care because their parent is dealing with um, economic issues and can't just sometimes get a job overnight and have all of your housing problems fixed, right? Or um, the parent might be dealing with substance use where we know that like having a recurrence is often a part of recovery um, or a mental health problem that you know, even parents who have 
what we might consider a more significant mental health diagnosis can be really excellent parents, but a lot of them still experience crises. I remember when I was a therapist, I was working with a mother who had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. Um, and, you know, like I said, not to share details that are not appropriate, but it was a long process for them and it was really difficult, but ultimately it was, they were able to find a way to, to reunify the family through like having um, the right supports. You know, sometimes I wonder why did it take, you know, I think I met her, um, I became their therapist, I think, you know, a couple years after they had been in, like longer than, you know, they really want children to stay in the system. And I'm thinking like, what if we could have identified those supports earlier on? Or what if those supports were just automatically there? So sometimes I think of those things for families that when we have those bigger problems, we don't often have the resources available that families need. Um, but all of those things can, you know, create a longer stay, which can add on to kind of youth mental health. Um, just as a side note, like something that they're thinking about, like, so they um, often kind of limit or try to limit the amount of time that you spend in care um, through like things called concurrent planning. Um, and what that is, is like you have goals for reunifying the family and then you also have goals um, for terminating parental rights at the same time. So when a child enters care and they're not really sure whether reunification is possible, they're going to be setting services or um, like case plan goals up that would support both outcomes. You know, but that's really hard. That's part of that uncertainty and that complexity for children. And so one thing that a lot of people are starting to talk about is why is it besides a legal precedent or a legal reason that we have to terminate parental rights permanently um, for children when there is something that we know is going to take longer for the family to work through, like mental health or substance use? Um, you know, why is that the only option when we know that sometimes that creates so much pain for children and for families? And you know, we don't have options or I don't have any answers to that. I, I'm definitely not a legal expert, for example, um, you know, but just to kind of throw that out there that, um, you know, maybe we're doing things the way that we've always done them because we're comfortable and used to doing it. But maybe we need to like, with the complexity of the situation, maybe we need to consider more complex answers. Yeah, no, I think that whole idea of well, it's all or nothing, like the parent has to jump all in and want all parts of it or there's, otherwise they get none at all. Like there is that whole understanding that, okay, if a parent can't look after a child, then they shouldn't be looking after them at all. They shouldn't have any connection to them. And I've heard about the whole idea of reunification and that's something that's ideology ideally something that you want to do, but there is that chance that a parent can't look after the child who can barely look after themselves. And then that whole relationship is just severed into, okay, if they can't reunify them within the first, however long, whether it's the first like three months or six months, then that's the enough time for the whole process to no longer be an option which right. is scary. Like you talk about, I think you were talking about drug use as well. Like they, that's takes a long time to be weaned off of to, even if that whole motivation is to gain a child back is to be able to look after a child. There's still, it takes years to rebuild a life afterwards. It takes years to even a lot of jobs as well. A lot of careers don't even allow someone who had access to drugs or who was a drug user, or there's a lot of stigma around, um, which stops them from looking after their own life, which, I mean, that whole idea um, of not even having a permanent home address, for example, would be something that would stop 
parents from getting parental rights of a child, which I understand is a is a benefit to the child in a way, but it's also damaging the relationship between the parent and the child that that do want to have a relationship. And especially with a child that has no say, I think that would be an extremely excruciatingly painful process for a child to go through, which I think increases the amount of trauma that they would feel as well. So it is a it is a tricky it is a tricky sort of conversation, and especially the legal processes that sort of take place in that. And I'm I'm not, I'm not going to go and talk about the whole legal process because I know that's that could be a whole hour long conversation if I'm honest. But even just sort of putting like like you were saying, putting it out there that that's what the reality is for a lot of children and a lot of biological parents who do want to have maintain a relationship, even if it's just a I'll see you once a week or I'll see you once every two weeks or something like that. So there is that huge, huge conversation to be had, I think. Now, looking into the stigma that sort of happens and just understanding the whole, there's a lot of people who have a huge stigma around the whole idea of foster systems and foster care and not really wanting a child that isn't theirs. And I've heard I've heard a lot from either my friends or from family who sort of see that, okay, I want my own children. I want children of my own. And that's sort of their understanding as to what a family is. Now, how can we address that stigma around mental health in a foster, foster care system? I think that um, a lot of the things that um, we see in society are often mirrored in foster care. You know, so, you know, just like we need to reduce stigma for mental health in society, we need to do the same thing in foster care. Sometimes we have um, decision makers who are maybe, um, you know, really gung ho about something, but like they haven't been able to create a culture around mental health support or um, you know, supervision or coaching for workers when they're working with families who are dealing with these really real and difficult things. Um, you know, so I think that in many ways, just kind of thinking like, you know, for example, if workers or um, foster families are working with families who do have um, mental health or substance use issues or those kind of things, um, often there needs to be training, but there also needs to be kind of like the development of like the supportive or like, you know, like helpful culture. Um, so kind of understanding that. Um, one example that I often think about is when we did our evaluation of comfort calls, um, we kind of saw like a similar context that the people who planned like, hey, we're going to do these comfort calls and we're going to make um, our frontline workers do these calls that they have not been trained to do, um, for example, until now, um, you know, that like they often like kind of made decisions for the workers before the workers were really prepared to do do that. But some of it was because the workers just needed more training or they needed more like supervision for like, how do I deal with really tough calls or how do I work with families who seem to be uh, more reactive um, to this experience of having their child removed or, or those kind of things. Um, so I just think like, you know, they're like, since training, it's culture, it's ongoing support. Um, it's kind of understanding the success stories that mental health problems and substance use problems can be resolved. Like good things do happen, right? Um, so I don't want to be overly hopeful sometimes, but like sometimes good things happen and we need to know those things too. Um, I also think with like uh, youth, kind of going back to the youth mental health side, a lot of times, I think I kind of mentioned this a little before, 
people see problematic behaviors and they don't always understand that that's a sign or symptom of a mental health problem or a potential mental health diagnosis. And so we need to make sure that caseworkers and caregivers and sometimes even parents too, like birth families, um, understand that this is the youth's reaction to the stress that they're going on, their idea that they can't meet the expectations or demands of that situation. They haven't developed the coping. Um, maybe they haven't always observed like healthy coping of how to deal with stress, like their adaptive behaviors have um, not been adaptive in every situation, right? Um, so I think that just kind of helping adults understand like developmentally, they're not at a place where they can always make um, the best decision that the adult thinks that they can make at that moment. And then I think too that um, we really need to make sure that families are taken care of and that both birth families and foster families are supported. Um, within some of our like um, conversations, my research team with families, you know, foster families don't often have access to their own therapy or resources or supports unless there's a crisis. Um, and they shouldn't have to wait till there's a crisis or like a turning point or a, a breaking point even um, to get access to help or, or support. You know, if they're going to be doing this within the system, maybe that's something the system needs to um, help to kind of support them through. So just to kind of throw those things out there that um, kind of I mentioned like the ecological model, it's the person within the family, within the organization, within the community, within like the um, policy or procedural system. Are you talking about support, talking about the sort of connection that's available before children? What kind of resources are available for children in the foster care system who need that mental health support? So um, in general, the all of the basic needs of children are, are supposed to be met through the system, whether that be like their health, their mental health, their um, educational needs, their um, dental needs or dental hygiene or those kind of things. And so um, also because of their experiences or potential like, um, you know, trauma or those kind of things, sometimes formal mental health services that are provided through that are the best thing. Um, so I think that that's kind of um, something that's really important um, to think about. It's like sometimes the system, we need to do certain things better, but the way that things are designed within the system, it's intended and designed um, that way on purpose because um, youth need to make sure that they have attention from caregivers and workers and those kind of things who are trained. Um, within that too, um, you know, children should have well-trained foster parents who have access to ongoing support for dealing with mental health issues um, or for supporting co-parenting because, you know, having a child having a good attachment relationship with the caregiver, but also with their birth parents really important. So foster families need to be able to support a child's attachment needs as well. Um, another thing too is um, children need visitation with their birth families or their birth parents, or they need sibling visits if their sibling can't be placed in the same foster home as they are. Um, in some cases, they even have um, therapeutic visitation where, you know, it's a therapist who's facilitating this visit with the child and the family. So it's not just like sitting there and having family therapy, but they're doing um, fun bonding things, but within the context of somebody you can kind of like coach or provide support when like they reach tough moments. Um, so that's um, something that can be really helpful. And then um, I think also too, one of the best ways to support um, youth mental health and something that's becoming a greater focus, even like there's been policies around it, um, is providing more normal experiences for youth. Foster care is not often normal. You know, you're not living with like your caregiver, that your parent that you were raised by, you're potentially in a different place, but like 
you know, so anything where they can do fun activities, um, they can get a driver's license. There's a policy sometimes that like help support youth getting their driver's license, for example, you know, normalcy um, for youth is related to better well-being. Um, and so just to kind of point that out and like kind of as the, the general, um, like a general research thing that we see across all populations of youth, whether they're in foster care or not, is uh, making sure that we facilitate um, or help youth find one positive adult connection. Often it's not their parent or might not even be their foster parent, but it's just another adult. But we find that when youth have a strong positive relationship with at least one other non-parental or non-caregiving adult, um, that they have higher levels of resilience, which is related to better mental, mental well-being. And we see that in foster care, um, like youth in foster care as well. Um, that's really important. So all of those things can help to support youth mental health and should or hopefully are available within the system that um, youth are involved in. Well, that's amazing. There's so there's so many ways to sort of give support. Then, if I guess if you know how to get there, if there is a way that you can be told, because I know that from what I understand, there's not a whole lot of sharing as to how to get the information or how to get the resources. For example, if um, I mean a lot of social workers are being spread thin a lot of caregivers are being spread thin when it comes to being there constantly for the child and being aware of their emotional needs as well that we can talk about getting a driver's license for a child that sometimes can be a thing that is overlooked until the until the very end because they're busy looking after other parts of a child as well so even something as that can be something really good to know and to find out, I guess, early, early on in the child's life of the connection that you can have. Yeah. And for foster parents too, sometimes they're given a whole bunch of resources during their pre-service training before they have a child in their home or like they go to a training and they get a bunch of resources on a specific thing. But if it's not relevant to what they're dealing with in the moment, they might not remember where did, that, where did that list go or who do I call or, oh, this agency is not doing this anymore or or something like that. So like, as you mentioned, like having, um, knowing where and who and when to go for different things when you have a child with different needs in your home or an emergent um, issue kind of come up that needs to be addressed or an acute issue, like those things are really important. Yeah, no, exactly. Now we're going into the practice and habit part of our show. It gives you a chance to talk about practices that you recommend or that you do yourself when it comes to being in the system. Now, what practices would you recommend that can help mitigate any negative effects that mental well-being of children would have in the foster care system? The family therapist in me um, decided to kind of choose something that could be helpful maybe for all parents. It's definitely helpful for me. I have a two-year-old going on a three-year-old right now. And so um, one of the one of the things I used to do was I would do some parenting um, like skills training with parents and um, I wouldn't necessarily use like one specific model. However, there's a lot of models that are awesome. I really like for foster parents in particular, I really like the keep foster parent training out of the Oregon Social Learning Center. It's awesome. It's been applied in multiple different countries and contexts. Um, I've been adapted to lots, a lot uh, to different cultures. I also really like parent child interaction therapy. Um, it's a little bit more suited to younger children, um, but a lot of the skills are applicable to older children as well. And um, there's different parts and components, but um, I'd pull a piece out um, of that, like of PCIT, um, Parent-Child Interaction Therapy, 
Um, so I'm going to credit and cite um, Dr. Timmer and her team. They're awesome. People have been to many of their trainings. Um, but I wanted to get, kind of give just an example of some parent skills that can be like a daily practice or something that were really helpful. Um, some of them are like, like I already do that or I already knew that. Um, and they, they hope that they are. But sometimes we don't think about like being very intentional about this. So one of the parts of their model are pride skills. And so the acronym is praising appropriate behavior. So that's the P. R is reflecting or repeating appropriate talk when children are kind of demonstrating something appropriate. So you're kind of reflecting on that, like, hey, you're doing this thing. That's great. Um, the I of the pride skills is to imitate or to model what appropriate play or interaction would be like. The D is to describe the appropriate behavior so that you're saying aloud what the child is doing well. And then the E is to express enthusiasm. So praising appropriate behavior, reflecting appropriate talk, imitating appropriate play, describing the appropriate behavior, and then expressing enthusiasm. And there, there's your pride skills there. Um, so I think that is one of like a, a daily practice that's really important um, for children in foster care, um, but also for children um, across all contexts, maybe even for adults sometimes, because sometimes our partners or our parents or our siblings or loved ones might also need some similar skills in order to know how to um, provide a more positive interaction or experience within our family. And what are some, what are three good things that you found about going through this practice yourself and then also recommending to other people? Yeah. So for me, what I found is that um, these skills are pretty easy to implement. Like I said, most parents kind of like, well, I kind of do this anyways, but they they often don't do it consistently. They might not use them with the right things. They might kind of revert when they're stressed, they revert back to some of their um, other parenting things that might be unintentionally reinforcing negative um, interactions, for example. But um, so it's easy um, as a parent, like it helps you or caregiver, foster parent, it's helping you to model like what your expectations are um, so that like you have no um, question as to like, that's what you're asking them for. And if that's it, like, hey, that's not so bad. Like that's actually doable for the child. And then um, like the other piece of that is it helps build positive interactions. It's not like, don't do that. Or what are you doing? Or why are you doing that? Or why are you this way? You know, it doesn't set them up for this like negative interaction. It's very strength focused. It's very positive. And um, it's just, like I said, it's easy, it's modeling, it's positive, like um, all the things that parents often need. Uh, but when we're stressed, we don't often think to do. And in contrast to the positive benefits that sort of come about, what are some of the challenges that you could experience when going about this practice as a routine or as a day-to-day -day occurrence? Definitely. I think that one of the things that I've heard when I worked with families in the past, foster families or parents, is that um, children don't often respond to these skills right away. Um, sometimes when children come from other homes, when you're trying to initiate a new routine, um, it takes a while. And I often ask people like, have you ever bit your nails or you've tried to lose a pound or two or you've tried to um, create a daily habit that's really hard to do or wake up early every day when you're like a night owl, you know, or something like that. Like, creating um, habits are really hard. And when a child has been in a home that the routines are different or a routine didn't exist, um, sometimes that can be really hard. And so um, the most important thing with these kind of skills are that you have to um, be consistent. You have to just keep trying. You have to do it the same way. Um, and so sometimes modeling that, um, especially sometimes fostering can be really stressful. Children you know, are dealing with really real things that we just talked about. Um, you know, like you really have to be patient. You have to apply it. 
Um, I once saw this video about a, um, it wasn't specific to like behavioral parenting necessarily, but it was a child who um, in foster care who was not staying in bed. And the foster parent, um, you know, went basically to do parenting, you know, parent training um, in order to figure out how, how do I deal with this? Because the child's getting up a million times throughout the night and I can't sleep and like they were kind of losing it. And essentially like the therapist told them to do the same thing every single night until it's done. And they literally counted that it took a hundred days, but then like after about a hundred days, the child finally started going to bed. That, that's really tough. And I hope that no skill ever takes a hundred days, but sometimes it <laughs> might. Um, so I kind of just play that out that, um, you know, children, children are, are little people who have been in different environments and they need patience and consistency. Yeah. That hundred days seems like a very, very, I mean, kudos to those parents who sort of managed to get through a hundred days consistently doing that practice and going through it. Um, now, how do you find that this practice would impact or does impact your understanding on family and also your understanding as to how life goes? So I think um, I, I've kind of spoken, I think, just a little bit like to it, but a lot of times the context of dealing with mental health is stigmatized. It's thought of very negatively. It's um, I know I just used examples mostly with younger children, so it doesn't necessarily address the complexity, but like Sometimes the way we address mental health is by treating it really kindly and gently and softly and consistently and openly. And, you know, a lot of times parents and caregivers um, have to be the ones who are very um, open and unconditionally accepting of children. And so um, when we put out these skills, sometimes those with most power have to be the ones to make the adjustment or make the change first. Um, so I think of that as something that's really important, but also something that's empowering for caregivers um, to think about is that like you can provide this context where a child can have a more healing or helpful experience um, or that you can help them to get through one of the most difficult or most terrible moments of their life. Um, so small things can make really, I know that like we didn't talk about the big stuff, but like sometimes the not getting sleep is what leads to mental health symptoms or mental health problems for children. And so doing this right thing, you know, or this good thing um, can be really helpful. So um, small things can make big differences and like kindness and gentleness, you know, like along with parenting, kind of that, that positive like approach can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Now we're going into the last section of our show, which is the open mic gives you a chance to talk directly to the audience about something that you are passionate about. Um, I think we did mention a little bit earlier as to what you wanted to talk about. So we had a little preview into it. So in the last minute or so, I'd love to hear more about what you were talking about earlier. Yeah. So I think, um, no, I, th I might just kind of like speak like about like some of the things that I get excited about, but one thing that I've been able to kind of delve into more the longer that I've been doing this is, so I was a clinician first. And then, um, you know, as I was going through my doctoral or research training, I was doing my clinical work. So I got to really kind of use my research, to, like impact my clinical work. But then after doing, um, you know, a good number of years of clinical work, it took me a little while to get through my PhD, but um, that's not always a bad thing. Um, so, you know, like I was able to kind of really like reflect and kind of develop my research approach. Um, I was really interested in foster parents originally, like, why would they do this? You know, why would they take on this big job? 
And then I became interested in how do they do this big job? What can we do to help them do this big job? And then, um, you know, I started to kind of understand they're dealing with a lot because of children are needing, you know, some extra support and resources. And then I started to realize, okay, there's even more to this, you know, that foster parents are really connected to families and that we need to think more holistically or more like um, kind of broadly about like what family is in foster care. So I kind of bring that up to say that, you know, I, I might've been originally interested in like when I first started this journey in like foster parent training and youth mental health, but I've realized that youth mental health is more than just helping foster families be well-equipped, that it's also like making the structural changes, um, understanding the policies, understanding the supports that are needed and all of those things. So um, just some things that I've learned. I talked about the Comfort Call project and kind of doing interviews with, I did interviews with people who um, designed the Comfort Calls, people who implemented the Comfort Calls on the ground. And then we also did interviews with foster parents and then a few birth family, um, birth parents. And, you know, like kind of just seeing all the different perspectives of this one I call it a Band-Aid. It doesn't change anything structurally. It kind of just like immediately deals with like the need for information, for support, to like hear people's voices, to set up some um, information sharing about the child. Um, so like that comfort call project just like showed how understanding all the different perspectives can give us a lot of insight into like how we can make policy better, how we can make practice better. So um, something that I'm really passionate about is when I'm designing projects, I'm always making sure that I'm either including or consulting or... Um, you know, using like the expertise of somebody with lived expertise or lived experience um, with the foster care system. It also um, has helped me recognize like this kind of work. And also I mentioned the photo voice project too, where we asked youth to reflect on like their independent living skills. And we learned a lot from them that like the things that the system sometimes want them to get, they don't get the benefit of because of some of the challenges or like the context of the system. So um, you need to be involved in shared decision-making. Um, one thing that I've learned through these projects that I've become kind of passionate about, like understanding more is that um, people who are impacted by foster care systems prefer to interact with informal systems or their own social support systems. They don't really always want to interact with professionals and researchers and policymakers and those kind of things. And so like learning to kind of respect their experience and also to set up a system where the youth doesn't have to go to the therapist selected for them by the system to get their needs met or, or something along those lines. Um, I also, like through these projects, have just recognized the importance that you can't make a system change unless there's a culture or the system is set up to make that change. You know, if you say like, here's this great policy around foster parent training or comfort calls or whatever, but then you haven't trained everybody to deal with it or you don't have the right services or supports in place to kind of implement those things, um, your implementation is going to not go the way you want it to go. Um, so that's really important. And then I think that um, one thing for me, um, kind of maybe like the last thing that I've like lesson I've learned or kind of thing that I'm passionate about is seeing or that I'm seeing across these multiple projects, including the comfort call and the photo voice project is that when we only focus on like the compliance to the policy or the compliance with our employee handbook or, or those kind of things, we miss out on the relationship. And so when we are overly focused as kind of like system representatives on like compliance, people don't often get to have that relationship with us. And really what youth and parents and foster caregivers really want is they want to be cared for, cared about, empathized with. And so sometimes we need to really prioritize building relationships um, alongside compliance um, so that people see like the humanness of the system. 
Um, like one of the hardest parts I think for me is sometimes I feel like I teach my students to have a job that they might not get to have because, you know, I teach them maybe around relationship building skills, um, you know, or I teach or even my licensure supervisees, for example. But then when they get into practice and they're in this really high stress environment, like they can only fall back on the policy because they don't necessarily have the supportive context for doing that. So um, that a lot of what we do as um, professionals or even like I said, within families too, like we need supportive context and we need to kind of model the things and do the things that we want to do to build relationships across all parts of the system. So those are, I think that's probably my soapbox for tonight, but I appreciate the time to talk about it. No, I think it's an interesting interesting sort of dynamic to sort of look, look into and interesting conversation to have. Um, I love that you ended with that. And I love that we got to learn and explore a little bit more, even after the show, even just looking into what we can look into ourselves and understanding. And I will definitely go and replay back and pretty much Google a lot of what you said, just to understand it a little bit more. But I think it's, it's amazing the kind of work that we're that today's society is being able to look into when it comes to, I mean, mental health is such a new, newly discussed thing. We never used to talk about it before, say a decade ago, it was always something that was just, okay, we know that it's there, but we're not going to really mention it. Now that we're able to look into it, there's so many different ways that it can be looked into so many different areas that need that mental health understanding, that gentle care to um, to share with other people. And I love the work that you're doing in order for your way to share the, not only the logistic side, but also the emotional side that sort of comes about. And yeah, it's, it's amazing to what we're getting to understand today. And on that note, thank you so much, Morgan, for joining me today Absolutely. and for talking about it. Um, it was such, actually, it was such a good insight to see the child's perspective because it's not something I think we've said that so many times on the show, but it's not something that we hear about a lot. It's not something that um, we're all that knowledgeable, knowledgeable about because there's not a lot of information out there on a child's perspective. Um, but I'm glad that we got to open up that door, open up that window that, to allow someone else to sort of see what a child goes through when it comes to mental health in the foster system. So if there's a way that audience members would like to get in touch with you, whether it's to ask a question further, maybe comment on something that I have probably missed, or just to ask for a little bit more guidance, is there a way that they are able to reach you? Yes, absolutely. So my email, um, if you Google my name, Morgan Cooley, um, I should pop up pretty quickly. Um, and I think um, my email, though, for anybody who needs it is um, C-O-O-L-E-Y-M at FAU.edu. Okay, perfect. I will have that down in the description on the YouTube channel down below just for easy access if anyone would like to get into contact with Morgan. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It was it was really good to get to talk to you and I hope that your family is well as well after recovering and I'm so glad that you were able to make it. Um, yeah, thank you so much guys for listening and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you, Tina. You've been listening to All Together, the Family Science Insights podcast produced by Family Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. 
More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel so that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at fa.lmsl.net, where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent, and thanks for tuning in.